Hey, good morning. And uh, my name's Sam. If I haven't met you, one of, one of the pastors here at Philippi, super, super pumped to get into God's word this morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's go ahead and read, let's stand and read the passage together, try to get a feel for the whole of the passage. We're going to start in verse 8, and we'll end in verse 22. God's word says, Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Father, this is your word. We believe that. And this morning, God, we're, we're here to submit our hearts and to submit our minds under the authority of Scripture. God, we're here to conform ourselves to be conformed by the renewing of our mind, to be transformed into the image, into the, the thinking of your son. We're here to think like you, Jesus. And we need your spirit to do that. And God, I want to pause and just recognize that every single human in this room this morning is at a different space, in a different place in their life. But God, what I love about your word is that it is sharp. It's living, it's breathing. And it has the ability by your spirit to pierce and to affect those areas deep within our heart that we don't even know we're there. Lord, what I know this morning is that the gospel is powerful. It's the dynamic, explosive power of God to save. So this morning, I pray that the gospel would do that, that it would save the lost, that it would sanctify the saved, that it would enrich our love for you, expand our worship for you. God, make yourself bigger in our sight. Help us to see how great you are through this passage this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. People love places. Uh, we, we love places. We, we visit places. We make plans to go to special places. I think each of us enjoy to some degree even manicuring our own places, our homes, our environments, our offices. We love places. I mean, one of the funnest things to do in life is to go and, and be in a new space. The three rules of uh, real estate are what? Location, 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 right? It, it matters. Space matters. Place matters. Uh, where you are geographically, it matters. And there are places that people want to be, and there are places that people don't want to be. Uh, I won't get into any names. <coughs> Grant, uh, not Grant, I was going to say Cape Junction. But uh, that's where people want to be, just in case you're wondering. Uh, I almost said White City, but, but I, yeah, um, people want to be there too. There, there are... There's something to place. There's something to space. Um, recently got to travel out of the country um, over into to sort of Eastern Europe. And, you know, traveling internationally is fun. It's, 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 it's really cool. But um, about a week in, you just really want to be home. I mean, everything there is different, right? Like the, the smells are different. The food is different. The culture is different. You kind of feel like, a walk, like an idiot walking around. Like you don't even know what currency, or how much to pay for things. And you don't know how to order on a menu. And everyone's looking at you like you're weird because you are. And it's just, it's, it's kind of stressful. And I, I found myself a week into being in, in Albania uh, a year ago. I found myself just like longing for Grant's Pass. I just want to be home. I want to be back in my place with the trees and with Dutch bros on every corner. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just the Cascade Mountains and the river. And it's, I love Grants Pass. It's, it's my place. Anyone else love Grants Pass? I, it's my place. It's where, yeah, good. So don't go move into Tennessee or something, okay? Like none of that. Stop that. Uh, stay. Yeah, stay. This is our place, right? This is our space. This is the space that God has given us to live in. Now, God has stitched it into our DNA to have place. We are people that long for place. God created the world, and then he picked out a place on that globe called the Garden of Eden, and he put people in that place. And he designed Adam and Eve to, to flourish and to function within this space on the globe. And, and, and not only did he put them in a place, he put them with people. There's, there's four things I think we need as humans to, to flourish. This is God's idea, not mine. The first is a place. The second is people. God created community, said it's not good for man to be alone, so he made him Eve. The third, the third is purpose. We need purpose. And God gave Adam and Eve purpose, didn't he? He gave them the cultural mandate. He said, go fill the earth with human uh, image-bearing beings that glorify God and then cultivate the earth. Take the place and make it better. And that's why you and I love to cultivate space. But we love to take things and renovate them or to make them better because God actually designed us to do that. The fourth thing we need to flourish is God's presence. We need God's presence because God is the source of all life. God is ultimate reality. Without the presence of God, life doesn't make sense. So we need place, we need people, we need purpose, and we need God's presence. And in the garden, God made a place that had all four of those things. 
He said, here's a space I've carved out for you. Now go cultivate it and fill it with more people and create a community and create a culture and create a a context for yourself and and make it better. That was what God designed Adam and Eve to do. But you guys know the story, Genesis 3, all of that got shattered and twisted and contorted and broken. And and what we're experiencing now is we're experiencing not a Genesis 1 world, we're experiencing a Genesis 3 world where God's People have become, in many ways, enemies to God and and enemies with one another. We live in a Cain and Abel world where we kill one another and where where sin is a reality and murder is a reality and and death is a reality. We live in a a world that that our purpose is unfortunately being choked by thorns. Our, our work is stained by sin. It's not as sufficient and and as, as, as satisfying as it was meant to be. So, so, so people has been affected and purpose has been affected. And God's presence, of course, has been separated from humanity in a, in a way that, that, that makes us know we're missing a significant part of who we are. And place has been affected. So even though I love Grants Pass, and even though Grants Pass is my home, and I think it's my place, and I want to, if, if God let me, I'll just stay here for the rest of my life, the reality is there's a deep ache within me for a place that is more transcendent and more full and more mine than Grants Pass. And as, as much as I love my home and as much as I love our house, and it, it still is co- not quite the place that my heart is longing for. There's a space, there's a place that we're looking for. And, and, you know, humans, we try our best to try to curate Eden, don't we? Like we're all chasing Eden. We all want to sort of curate our own. Uh, it's been called before the utopian vision. Every, every person has tried to create their own sense of Eden. Uh, this happened in Genesis chapter 11. Humanity was all together in one place, remember? And, and they decided they would um, build this tower, the Tower of Babel. And they all had one language. And it was man's best attempt to create a place like Eden, but the problem was it was a godless place. The problem was it was a space sourced in man, and that's why Babel becomes the root idea of the, the, the archetypical idea of the man-made uh, system of this world. So what did God do? He said, this is not the place that I have for you. So he came in and he scattered the languages and he scattered humans all over the world. That's why we have all kinds of different cultures now in Genesis 11. And since then, there's been this biblical theme, this biblical um, kind of leaning of this idea of space that God is once again going to restore space, Eden, garden, back to humanity. But how is he going to do it? He needs to give us a place. He needs to give us a people. He needs to give us purpose. He needs to give us his presence. How is he going to do it? Well, you could say the first, one of the first steps that he did was he called a man named Abraham to be a new people, to be a progenitor, the first of a new people. And that's the figure we're going to really talk about this morning. But before I get ahead of myself, Jesus came into this world preaching the kingdom of God. Did you know that? This was like the number one thing Jesus talked about. It wasn't just ethics, although he talked about those. It wasn't just money or sexuality, although he talked about those. Jesus came in preaching primarily the prime thing Jesus preached was the kingdom of God. And you should ask the question, what is that, Sam? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is is this. The kingdom of God is bigger than just the church. The kingdom of God is bigger than just Israel, although the church and Israel are under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger than just creation itself. The kingdom of God is bigger than just heaven itself. The kingdom of God is even bigger than just Jesus. The kingdom of God is God's rule 
fully manifested. So the kingdom of God exists right now, and it's breaking into this world. That's why Jesus said uh, he prayed that, that, that um, the Father would rule in, on earth as he is in heaven. What he's saying is he's saying, make this domain your kingdom like heaven is your domain. And that's what Jesus came declaring. Jesus came declaring not a set of ethics and not a philosophy and not a way of life primarily, although that is included in it. Jesus came declaring the the, uh, invasion of an entirely new reality into this world. Jesus came declaring the good news that through him, a new existence, a new world, a new domain, a new nation, a new society, a new people was going to break in and overtake this world and that would be the place of man forever. That's what Jesus came talking about. He said, the kingdom of God. And he said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was talking about himself because Jesus is what? What is Jesus' place in the kingdom? He's the king. He's the king. Jesus is the king in the kingdom. Now, Jesus said when he left his disciples, he said, I'm going to make what for you? I'm going to make a place for you. Jesus came so that we might have place restored. He came to make a people. He came to restore purpose. He came to restore God's presence. Jesus came to fulfill the kingdom of God. And all of that, friends, all of that is the gospel. Jesus came to do much more than just forgive sin. Jesus came to inaugurate and eventually consummate the the entrance of a kingdom that will last forever. Ever. And that is our place. As the people of God, and I hope I get an amen here, as the people of God, we long for that place. The place that is the kingdom where Jesus, the king, is on the throne fully. Nothing is against him and his reign and his rule and his shalom and his peace and his glory and his goodness is spread without restraint. This is the city of God that we long for. This is the reality that drove all the saints for all of time to live faithfully for God was this hope of a place. Now, the call of Jesus to follow him was not a call to change a few things about your life. The call of Jesus to follow him was a call to abandon your citizenship in this world and take up an entirely new one. Jesus said to be born again. He didn't say, adopt some changes in your life. He didn't say, live a little differently. He, said, be a, he didn't say, be a little more ethic. He, he said, die to self and be born again. That's the idea of Christianity. Okay, the idea of Christianity is we resign our citizenship. And not in such a way that says, you know, if you, let's say you lived in Mexico and you were a, a citizen of Mexico. And you say, well, okay, I'll, I'll resign my citizenship of Mexico if I can instantly get citizenship in the United States. That's not, that's not the reality for Christianity. The reality for Christianity is we resign our citizenship in this world and then we live like strangers, exiles, waiting and longing for our new and future kingdom to come. You know what we're like? Have you guys ever seen that movie Terminal? It sounds like a war movie, but it's not. Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is, is uh, he's trapped in an airport for like three months or something. Have you guys seen this movie? Anybody? Bueller, Bueller, Okay. He's trapped in an airport, and it's actually based on a true story. And what, what happened, I think, is, is he, he was in the airport at the time that his country lost its sovereignty. And so he, he basically is a citizen of nowhere. And so he can't enter in the United States. He can't fly back to his country. So he's stuck in the airport. He lives in the airport. It's the whole idea. There's a sense of, of nomad life to the Christian life. And it's not that we don't have a citizenship. It's that our citizenship is in the future. 
that we're longing, that we're living like strangers and, and exiles in this world. This is all the idea of our text this morning. This is the idea that, that the author is trying to draw our attention to, that we are these citizens of a future kingdom, living like exiles, living in tents. You know, one of my favorite hobbies is backpacking. And I love backpacking. And, I, and in the backpacking community, there's two different kinds of people. There's people that hike to camp, and there's people that camp to hike. Okay? You know the people that hike to camp because they're carrying 50 pounds on their back. And they, they have, you know, three pairs of extra underwear and, and heavy shoes and, and chairs and, and everything that you could possibly have fun at camp. They, they, they hike to camp. But then you see the other people. And these are usually the, the Pacific Crest hike, trail hikers, the through hikers. They're trying to get 20 miles a day. They're, they're camping to hike. They're like just sleeping so they can get up and hike. I suggest to you that our text, the, the, the main idea is that we as Christians, we are camping to hike. We're on our way through. We're not to get comfortable here. This is in our home. I'm going to call this morning's sermon Faith in Nomad's Land. I thought that was kind of clever. Faith in Nomad's Land. I don't usually name sermons, but that, that was just kind of funny. Faith in no man's land. And, and what I mean by that is, how do we live here when we belong there? Are you with me? How do we live here when we don't belong here? Have you guys noticed, any of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while, like the more you walk with Jesus, the less at home you feel here? Like you're just, like you're just less comfortable in this world? That's Christian sanctification. That's maturity. You're growing into the next world. And you're growing out of this one. You're not growing out of physicality, but you're growing out of the world system. Sin is less appealing to you. We're going we're to get into that. And that's our idea this morning. How do we live in citizens, as citizens in a country to come? How do we live as nomads, tent dwellers? How do we camp to hike? So let's get into it. Hebrews 8, or 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. I got to speed up. <clears throat> that was a long introduction. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, I know some of you are very familiar with Abraham as a figure, as a biblical figure. He's in the book of Genesis. Uh, and some of you are not very familiar with Abraham as a figure. But let me just give you a little bit of a backstory. Let's ask the question, uh, who was Abraham and what was he called out of? It might surprise you to know that Abraham was kind of like a Gentile before he became a Jew. Isn't that funny? Before, before there were Jews, Abraham was the first ethnic Jew. So before Abraham, there was just pagan people mostly on the earth. There were still some faithful people following the Lord throughout the earth. But largely, the, the world was populated, populated by people worshiping false gods. And Abraham was one of those people. Isn't that good news? I mean, God saved somebody out of a pagan world. That's what he does. He, he saves people out of paganism. He was a pagan living in a place called Ur. And Ur is on the Euphrates River. It's modern-day Iraq. And he was a moon worshiper, more than likely, because that's what archaeology tells us people did there. They worshiped the moon god. And, and they, they, um, they did terrible things. They sacrificed children to, to their gods, like many pagan societies did. And God looked into this pagan land, and he picked a man, not because of this man's attributes or because of this man's goodness or because of this man's righteousness, but because of one thing, because God picked him, just like you. And God picked him, and then God called him, and God said, hey, you, I want you to come out of that land, and I want you to go to a new land. And I'm not going to tell you what that land is. I just want you to go. And what was Abraham called to? Abraham was called to two things. This is important. He was called to two things. The first thing Abraham was called to was to be the first of God's ethnic theocracy. 
Okay, the first of God's ethnic theocracy. What is an ethnic theocracy? It is the Jews. It is Israel. It's the people of God. Theocracy means a group of people ruled directly by God. So Abraham was the first ethnically to be a Jew, to be part of Israel. And he, he was the progenitor of Israel. And that was a very important thing for him to do. But that was not the primary thing that God called Abraham to do. The second thing Abraham was called to do was to be the typecast, listen, the typecast for God's faith community. So Abraham was not only the first Jew, Abraham was the type, meaning he set the tone for what it looks like to follow God by faith. And the New Testament authors unpack this multiple times in the New Testament. They talk about Abraham being our father of faith. He was our example of someone who simply was called by God, believed God, and was accredited righteousness. Go read as homework. Go read Romans chapter 4 this week. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 4. Paul is arguing that Abraham, that the reason we're justified by faith and not by works is because Abraham was accredited righteousness before he could even, before he was even circumcised. Four or five hundred years before Moses even came with the law. Okay, that's the whole idea. So Abraham is a typecast for the people of faith. And what that means is that he has incredible relevance to us today in our faith walk, in our faith race, in our faith journey. Now, what about Abraham's faith is similar to ours? What is it about Abraham? There's, there's a lot of things that we have in common with Abraham. The first, and maybe write this down, the first is that saving faith means leaving your choice seat at the table of this world. This is what saving faith is. Saving faith starts with God calling you to leave a very comfortable seat. Have you ever had a really good seat somewhere? And, and you, you really had to go to the bathroom or something? And you knew, like, there's no saving this seat? Like, if I get up, the seat's gone, right? Everyone wants this seat. This is the spot. Abraham was called to leave his seat at the table. Now, he, you know, we, we can think about Abraham and, and, and being a, a pagan and called out of Ur, but in reality, Abraham lived in a city, an urban environment where he was probably very comfortable, where he was very acclimated, where he probably had a decent life, where he knew who he was and he knew what to do, and God called him out of all of that comfort, all of that influence, and he said, I want you to go be homeless for the rest of your life. And I'm going to call you to a land, but I'm never actually going to give you that land physically in this life. That was the call of Abraham. And that's really the call for all believers, isn't it? The call for all believers is to abandon our franchise, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to sign over all of, my, all of my rights in this world, all for the purpose of adopting citizenship in a new world that I have not yet gotten to populate. That's the Christian life. That's what God called Abraham to do. He had to abandon his seat at the table. You know, there is no sitting on the fence with Jesus. This, this, this idea, this easy believism, this idea that I can just kind of, I can say I believe in Jesus but not really follow him, that is a Western contrived concept by well-meaning evangelicals that tried to make the gospel a little more easy to swallow. The problem is that Jesus didn't make that very easy to swallow. Jesus basically said, hey, if you're going to follow me, you have to sign over everything in this world and essentially come be homeless. I mean, that was the idea that, that Jesus, excuse me, that Jesus essentially invited them to. Let me tell you some things Jesus said. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, 
Yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he, he has enough to complete it. Uh, some of you that are new to church, you might be going, is Jesus telling me to hate people? Okay, and, and those of you that have been around church, no, no. Jesus is saying that you have to be ready to abandon every earthly relationship. If it, you have to be ready to do that, to follow Jesus, because that's how severe of a call it is to, to transfer yourself out of one kingdom into the next. And of course, the New Testament authors, most of them had to live that because most of them were rejected by their families. Most of them had to deal with not only state-sponsored persecution, but home, persecution at home. Moms, dads, wives, husbands, leaving them over their Christian faith. Jesus was trying to warn these guys. He's saying, hey, if you want to follow me, just be ready. Just be ready. That's what's going to happen. And then, here's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 57. He says, as they were going along a road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know this verse. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first to bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. These are harsh words. But as for you, go proclaim what? The kingdom of God. Go proclaim this new citizenship. Go proclaim this new world. Go proclaim this new reality that's breaking into this one and let the dead bury their dead. Let the dead things deal with the dead things. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why was Jesus so harsh about people that wanted to follow him? Don't they just need to raise their hand in the back of a dark room? Don't they just need to say, I believe, and then they're saved? Or could it be that the call to kingdom citizenship, could it be that the call to follow Jesus actually has some forsaking to do with it? That we actually don't just raise our hand and say, sure, we actually become citizens of a new world, and as a result, we become homeless in this world. That's the call to follow Christ. I can't sugarcoat it. It's hard. It's hard. And you you might be saying, well, why would anyone want to do that? We'll find out here in verse 9. We'll find out in verse 9. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live, this is Abraham, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So So they never, you know, this is interesting. Most people don't realize this. You know, Abraham never owned a scrap of land besides a tomb for his wife. It's the only thing he ever owned. Abraham never owned land. You think, wait, so was God a liar? What's the answer? The answer is the city, thank you. Someone over here is paying attention. Nice job. The answer is the city that God promised Abraham was transcendent to the dirt of Palestine. That's the answer. Now, God did answer that promise, and he did give Israel, but it wasn't for hundreds of years until Joshua led Israelites in to take the land. So what in the world? How is Abraham being promised land? Okay, we'll see it. Here it is, verse 10. For he, that is Abraham, guys, this is such a cool verse. Okay, if you're thinking about Father's Day brunch, come back to me, tune in. This is so important. Okay, verse 10. For he was looking, who? 
Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. How cool is that? How was Abraham able to leave his citizenship, his comfort, his life in Ur, and move out to a place he'd never been, called Canaan, where he never owned a scrap of land, where he lived in tents his entire life, and, and so did his son, and so did his son's son, and so did his son's son's sons. How did they possibly do that? The answer the biblical author says is he was looking past his life to a city. What is a city? A city is a place. He was looking past his life to a place that was created by God, a city that was made by God, a future country. Guys, what was Abraham excited about? What was Abraham living for? He was living for the kingdom of God, which was far transcendent to the Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. that That was certainly part of the promise But Abraham was thinking way bigger than just Jerusalem and just Israel. He was looking way past that. Now, you might ask the question, why here does it use the word city? Some of you guys, you live in Grants Pass because you hate cities, right? I mean, I go to L.A., I want to leave the second, I want to leave before I even get there. I can't even go to Dreadford anymore. I can't stand it. It's so busy, right? Just, I just want to stay in Grants Pass, uh, where there's like five stoplights. I just, like, you know, there's more than that. But some of you guys equate cities with smog and overcrowding and rude people and crime and, and whatever, you know. Um, but, but that's all sin. The biblical idea of city, the biblical idea of city is, the redeemed idea of city is culture, society, arts, people. It's, it's a cultivated Garden is the idea. That's, that's the idea of city. So when you think city, don't just think a bunch of people stacked on each other and smog. Think a society that is well-organized, that is thriving, that, that exhibits all of the, the, the facets of what makes us image bearers of God. That's, that's the idea of city here. And so Abraham is looking past this life, and he's looking to a city. Sam, what's the city? I'm glad you asked me that. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Revelation 21. The same city Abraham was stoked about is the same city that we are stoked about. It's the same city every believer who's ever walked by faith has been living for since the beginning of God's covenant relationship with with people. Revelation 21. John the Apostle, seeing a vision of future reality, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. There it is. The holy city. New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Guys, pause. Remember Jesus said, I'm going to make a place for you? He prepared it. And here in Revelation, we see it coming from the heavens being delivered to God's people. This new Jerusalem. It comes out of heaven, verse 2, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember I said the kingdom of God is where God's presence is there? 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Can I get an amen? And neither shall there be mourning. Can I get an amen? Nor crying. Nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now skip to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Skip to 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, that is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon or sh- to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is the Lamb. By light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut. You think New York's the city that never sleeps? I don't think so. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it glory and honor and the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What was the compulsion that drove Abraham to choose to be a nomad, to be homeless, to be placeless for his entire physical, earthly life? It was this city of God, the same city that you and I are supposed to be laser-focused on, the same city that we have future inheritance in, the same place that is better than the Eden God made for Adam and Eve. It's Eden 2.0. And there we will have God's people, and we will be living according to God's purpose, and we will be in God's place, and most importantly, we will be fully enveloped in God's presence. That's the city of God. Isn't that good? We're all looking to the same city. Now, verse 11. The author's going to, take a moment and mention Sarah, Abram's wife. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Why was it powerful for her to conceive? Because she was very old. She was past childbearing. You guys know this. She was, she was very old, and so it was a miracle that she could conceive, even when she was past age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Notice, what was Sarah's faith in? Was it in her ability to believe God, or was it in the faithfulness of God? Her faith was sourced in the faithfulness of God. Therefore, from one man, that is Abraham, and I love this, and him as good as dead. <laughs> that's, that's the way that he describes Abraham in this place. He's pretty much dead, man. And, and, and in regards, you know, uh, uh, procreative things, you can imagine what that, that's talking about, okay? He's pretty much as good as dead, right? He, he can't make a baby. How is this going to happen? We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So Sarah, like Abraham, had flawed faith. And and for some reason here, the author doesn't really mention a lot of their mistakes and missteps. But, you know, Sarah blew it. Abraham blew it. Remember, Sarah laughed the first time she heard about the idea of her bringing forth a child. Uh, And then then Sarah, it was her brilliant idea to to send Hagar in and have Abraham sleep with her so that they could, you know, have a different progeny. There was all kinds of issues, none of which the biblical author here brings up. Because the point is not their failures. The point is their faith. Praise God. However, it's good to remember them because we all suck at life too, right? Um, I do. Maybe you guys don't. I don't know. Uh, so, but regardless, God honors this promise 
because Sarah's faith was in the faithfulness of God. And then verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. He really wants us to see that. Do you you get that? They all died before they got the thing that they were promised. What does that tell us? It tells us that their true life had to transcend this life. You have to see that. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. I love that uh, Jordan, or not Jordan Peterson, Eugene Peterson, different guy. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he translates that, they waved at these realities from afar. It's kind of what he's saying. The, these guys waved at their future citizenship knowing that they would inherit it soon. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That is the Christian life. You ever feel strange? You ever feel exiled? It's because you don't belong here. And the more you grow in Christ, the less comfortable you're going to feel here. The less sin is appealing to you, the less what the world's offerings have are appealing to you. You know, I mean, I mean this, this is the, the reality of growing into another world. And this idea of exile, you know, this, this language is loaded with biblical significance, by the way. Uh, it's not an accident that the author of Hebrews reaches for the word exile when he wants to describe the Christian life or, or even the life of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah. The word exile would have triggered this audience, the Hebrew Christian audience, back to around 600 B.C. when the Jews were kicked out of their homeland and exiled by the Babylonians. And what was so significant about that period of time in Israel's history was that God's people had to learn how to be God's people without their place. And even though they lived in Babylon, which is really was such a pagan world-ruling empire, we have stories, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, all of these people that lived through the exile, they had to bring the culture of their people into the worldly context. Peter picks this up in, in his epistle. I'm not going to read it, but he opens his epistle, First Peter, you can read it later, by saying, exiles, strangers, pilgrims. He's picking up on this idea that we, just like the Jews in 600 BC-ish, uh, we have to live in a world where we don't belong, and we have to bring kingdom culture into this world. And that's what we do when we live the Christian life. We bring some of God's future kingdom reality, we bring it into this world now. We do that when we live according to kingdom life, when we're filled by the Spirit, when, we, when we're the fruit of the Spirit of God is passing through us. That is kingdom culture coming through us. This here, this is, this is a snapshot of the future kingdom of God. This is, this, is, this is why we as Christians are so big on society within, uh, or gospel community, I should say, a group of people that are living together, doing community together, doing life together because we are bringing God's future kingdom into this world now. We're like a little microcosm of God's kingdom here in Grants Pass. We're bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians, when we live under God's rule and we submit ourselves to God's rule and we live for God, we are literally bringing heaven, future heaven, into this world now. It's pretty exciting stuff. Now, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. What he means by that is that Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, these guys, they, they clearly were not just choosing to be homeless because they liked homelessness. They were choosing to be homeless because they were living for a future kingdom. Verse 15, 
if they had been thinking of that land from which they came, or had gone, I should say, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if these guys wanted to, they could have gone back to Ur. You know that? They, 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 they definitely could have, but they didn't want to because they now belong to God's country. They were now citizens of Christ's kingdom, and so they didn't want to go back. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I've kind of already made this point, but, but as Christians, part of the Christian life is that we no longer desire to go back. Have you noticed that and you, as you grow? There's just, not, there's just not a desire to go back to the kind of world and life that you used to live. And this was one of the problems that we saw in Israel in the Old Testament, is that God, even though God got Egypt out, or even though God got Israel out of Egypt, you notice that God was never able to get Egypt out of Israel? Have you heard that turn of phrase before? God got Israel out of Egypt, but he could never get the love of Egypt out of Israel. And that was the problem with the Old Covenant, is that even though God would redeem and, 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 and remove and, and take Israel out of their enemies, they still loved the world. And the reason was because they weren't born again. Okay? As a nation, there were people within Israel that I think were born again, but Israel as a nation could never seem to relinquish its love affair with the world. That's why there was idols in the temple for the majority of Israel's history. You know, most of the laws, this is such a rabbit trail, most of the laws in, in Leviticus were, were, were weird and bizarre because they were trying to get Israel to stop worshiping the pagan gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Like, don't shave the sides of your head. What's that all about? That, that was something that was done within the, the religion of the Egyptians. So what is God doing in the theocracy? He's trying to separate his people. He's trying to make them stand out because they belong to another kingdom. Okay, that was the whole idea. But they could never seem to relinquish their love for this world, which is why Jesus had to come into this world and give us new affections to bring his spirit so we could be born again. Where was I? You might ask this question, Sam, you're saying that growing as a Christian makes me love the world less but I still love the world a lot. How do I love the world less? Okay, I'm gonna give you Jesus' words on this. He said this, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's one of the most important phrases you can remember. What he meant by that is, whatever you're investing in, that's the thing you're gonna love. Notice that the investing comes before the loving. You see that? So here's a, a practical example of that. If, if you really, really, really want to buy a brand new truck, which nowadays are like $80,000, and you save for 10 years to buy that truck, you're really going to love that truck, right? You're really going to love that truck. Whereas if somebody just kind of gave you the truck, you might not love it quite as much. So whatever it is that you're invested in, whatever, there's some of yourself put into that. Jesus is saying, if you want to love the kingdom of God, invest in the kingdom of God, and you will love the kingdom of God. So, so one of the keys to worldliness is to stop investing in this world, to stop sinking your tent stakes so deep, to stop hiking to camp and start camping to hike. One of the reasons we love the world so much is because we've invested so much into it, so much money into our 401ks, so much hope and, 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 and hope that our retirement is really going to fulfill us, so much thought into our hobbies and thought into our pleasure and thought into our joys. And, and, and it's not that God is anti-joy in this world and it's not that God is anti-hobby, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You want to love God more? You want to love God's kingdom more? Invest in God's kingdom. Spend your time, spend your resources, spend your bandwidth, spend your treasure on God's kingdom and your heart will follow. 
It's just a freebie there. So let me ask, how much time do you spend thinking about your portfolio in this world? Comparatively, how much time do you think about the riches of your inheritance in Christ? And how much do you think about the things that Christ wanted you to do for the kingdom of God? Just think about that. What causes you the most stress in your life? Is it fear of losing out in this life or is it the concern for the eternal things of God? These are things Christians need to think about. Now, the author is going to move in verse 17. He's going to move from the early days of Abraham to the later days of Abraham. This is older Abraham, wiser Abraham, more mature Abraham. Thank God we mature, right? Because uh, Abraham did some dumb things we don't have time to get into. Um, but, you know, uh, he did. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this is referencing Genesis 22. Some of you guys may have known this already. Other of you guys can read it this week. But God calls Abraham. He says, hey, I want you to take Isaac, the fulfillment of the promise that you've been waiting for this whole time. I want you to take him up this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. Right? And you can imagine what Abraham's thinking. He's thinking, how could God possibly mean this? Because without the progeny, there's no promise. If I kill Isaac, then there's no chance that this is going to happen. Yet, Abraham goes to do it anyways. And we might ask the question, why? Why was Abraham so willing to do this? I think there's two reasons. I think the first is Abraham remembered how bad it went when he didn't trust God with his son. Remember Hagar, that whole thing? But the other thing is right here in the text. Here's why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. This was so interesting to me this week, by the way. I thought this was so interesting. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Did you guys know that's why Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac? I don't know how he knows that, but he knows that. The author of Hebrews tells us the reason he was willing to sacrifice Isaac was because Abraham had this high view, this high theology of resurrection. He thought, if I have to kill Isaac, God's going to raise him from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's why I'm bringing that up. Here's why I think he's bringing this up. How did Abraham have such a high view of this future city of God? Because Abraham had a highly developed view of resurrection. Abraham was not just thinking about his earthly physical life. He was thinking about resurrection, resurrection life, and so should we be as Christians. The idea of resurrection sounds bizarre to the world, but the idea of eternity is stitched within you, and the idea of living forever in a material universe is stitched within you. You know it's there, and that's what resurrection is. It's your physical body being recreated, remade 2.0 forever. And Abraham had this distinct understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if I had time, I'd get into the fact that Isaac is a type of Christ, but I think it's a sidelight. I'm going to keep moving. We're meant to see here that the life of Abraham is leaning forward. It's leaning forward. Uncomfortably tipping. You ever, you ever lean forward to the point where you're just about to fall over? Abraham's life is leaning forward. It's not grounded and rooted and settled on this world. It's leaning forward. He lived a resurrection life, a life that was focused on the resurrection. And not only his life, but his sons. Look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked, now we're, now we're on to the next generation, Isaac. Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Why? Because Isaac's life was leaning forward. 
Isaac wasn't just thinking about Isaac. I was, Isaac was thinking about the future. He was thinking about his sons. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is such a perfect passage for Father's Day, isn't it? Here we have flawed men, very flawed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sinners, so in need of the grace of God. Jesus died for their sins. Okay, they were saved on credit. But as flawed as they were, these, men's were, these men were not only thinking about their contribution to the Lord, they were thinking about the next generation. And that's what fathers do. That's what a good father does. A good father isn't about his own pleasure. A good father says, how do I invest in my kids? How do I invest in my spiritual kids? I love this. I love this because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were each thinking about investing this future promise of God's future grace into the next generation. Maybe some of you guys are thinking, uh, yeah, but I, I'm not that good of a dad. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm pretty broken. I'm a pretty broken person. I want you to see something in here. Verse 21, what is Jacob doing when he's blessing the sons of Joseph? He's worshiping over the head of his staff. What is that about? What, what, what does that mean? It means that as Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph, he's, he's literally crippled over a staff. Why was he crippled? Probably because he wrestled with God. He's old. He's frail. But even in his frailty, even in his age, even in his brokenness, he's still blessing. He's still thinking about the next generation. So there, there's your Father's Day message for this morning. Okay. Now, not only was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leaning forward, but even Joseph. Let's, let's conclude here in verse 22. By faith, I love this, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Isn't that cool? So Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sons, Joseph. Joseph predicted prophetically that in 400 plus years that Israel would uh, become enslaved and then they would be freed. And after that prediction, he said, when you go, when you leave Egypt, you better take my bones. And they did. They did. They took his bones. Why did Joseph want them to take his bones? Say it. Resurrection. Thanks, Mom. Good job. That's my mom. Ta taught me everything I know. Uh, why did Joseph, I want to hear from you guys, why did Joseph want them to take his bones? Resurrection. Resurrection. This, this, is, this has been the hope of the people of God since the beginning. Why do we have to die? Well, because the consequences of sin is death. But the reality of the gospel is resurrection. Jesus, when he resurrected, he was the first Jesus was, listen to me, this is so cool. Jesus was resurrected so that Abraham could be resurrected, so that Isaac could be resurrected, so that Jacob could be resurrected, so that you, if you believe in Christ, could be resurrected. Why? So that you can populate the new city of God, the new country of Christ, where there will be no tears, where there will be no pain, where there will be no death, where there will be no sin. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Guys, what I want you to see here, and I think what the biblical authors want you to see is, you know, we have so much more in common with the Old Testament saints than we think. You know, they, oh, they lived in the Old Covenant. They were saved by works. No, they weren't. No one was ever saved by works. Every believer 
Every covenant person of God was always saved by faith. And the promises and the hope of Old Testament saints was really no different than ours. The only difference is we're looking back at Jesus, they were looking forward. We were all saved by faith, by God's grace. God called us, we responded in faith, God accredited righteousness, and we have this hope of resurrection. The Bible, let me just step back and make one concluding point. The Bible is the tale of two cities. It's the tale of two cities. It's the city of God, and it's the city of man. It's Babylon and it's New Jerusalem. Read the book of Revelation. That's the whole idea, okay? Babylon is the system of man. It's the system in which we've been saved out of. New Jerusalem, Zion, God's city, it's the city that we're headed towards. It's where we belong. And our call right now is to live like citizens of the future reality, to live like citizens of a future kingdom. You were designed for a place, okay? And as many HGTV shows and Chip and Joanna Gaines shows as you might want to watch, and I don't care how trendy and cool and hip your house is and how much time you spend on your perfectly manicured yard and how many times you spend cutting the suckers out of your rose bushes, this is not your place. I'm glad you like your house. This is not your place. I'm glad you like your RV. Your trailer park is not your place. Okay? This is a place that we're passing through. We are not hiking to camp. We are camping to hike. So what does that mean? What does that look like? You can put it together. It means pack light. Pack light. Don't invest in this world. You know, you pick up these PCT hikers, the ones that are starting in Mexico, and they're in in Canada. They look like they have a fan. You might as well have a fanny pack. I mean, they have like nothing. They have like nothing. Why? Because they're just trying to get from Mexico to Canada. That's their goal. I think Christians should kind of look like that. I'm not saying you can't have any stuff. I'm not saying you can't have any fun. Okay. I'm saying pack light because this is not your home. And let the, the, the deep anticipation and the joy and the longing of the place that God has made for you that is soon to come out of heaven, delivered for you, adorned like a bride that you are going to populate. Guys, we are God's people. We're on God's mission. We're going to be in God's place, and praise God, we're going to be forever in his presence. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Would you stand with me? Invite Ryan back up. God, thank you so much for the faith of Abraham. It's such a gift to be able to look at our brother and our sister Sarah and our brother Isaac and our brother Jacob, saints of the Old Testament who were saved by faith. I thank you that it's always been trust. It'll always be trust in which salvation comes. Jesus, thank you for coming to pay the sin debt of all the Old Testament saints and to pay the sin debt of all the saints in this room. Without you, we'd be hopeless. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose from the dead so that you can make us a new people and put us in your place forever. I pray that we would live in light of that reality this week. In Jesus' name, amen.